Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Jacqueline Witt, professor of strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the podcast editor for War Room. The role of the U.S. Army War College is to produce strategic leaders and ideas that are invaluable to the Army, the Joint Force, and the nation. And part of accomplishing that mission is to make sure that the leaders and ideas we develop here are known outside of the confines of Carlisle Barracks. Uh, For as idyllic as it is, it is a small place. And so outreach is central to many of the things that we do. War Room and this podcast is one way that we reach a broader audience, but we also have several programs aimed at sending our students and faculty out into the world to talk with various audiences in the United States. Today's episode highlights one of those programs, the Eisenhower Series College Program, and this is one in which about 15 students this year, under the direction of War College faculty, give public talks and engage in discussion with a variety of groups across the U.S., so today I'm joined by Colonel Mike Bame, uh, Army officer and War College class of 2019 student. Hello, Jackie. Glad to be here today. And uh, Colonel Ed Kaplan, who's a faculty member at the War College and who leads the Eisenhower program. Uh, Ed's a U.S. Air Force officer and has a Ph.D. in military history. Good morning, Jackie. Great. So, gentlemen, thanks so much for coming uh, today and talking into microphones uh, instead of to a live audience. But Our audience is out there. So we'd like to start with, uh, and maybe a little bit of an explanation of what the Eisenhower program is, how it started, and and the history and purpose of it. Sure. So the the Eisenhower program goes about 50 years back in the War College's history, making it one of the longest standing special programs at the War College. Uh, We started out during the height of the Vietnam War uh, as the War College determined that there was a a gap, growing gap between itself and college campuses across the nation. Uh, Our earliest uh, engagements were in Pittsburgh with the World Affairs Council, where we started talking to audiences at Pitt and then also uh, with audiences uh, of educators from across the three-state area. Uh, But the program really took off in 1970 uh, with the invasion of Cambodia and uh, the unrest in college campuses across the country. The same, at the same time that uh, the unrest at Kent State was happening, Dickinson College here locally, uh, the students uh, marched on the War College, but instead of violence, we had discussion. And that dialogue uh, led to making what was at first called the War College Speakers Program a, a permanent feature of the college's outreach. And so every year since then, we've sent teams of students on the road, and we send two or three students to a college campus at a time, uh, and they talk about issues of strategic interest. Uh, it, they talk to people who are interested in national security, uh, interested in policy, but may not be experts in the instruments of military power. In other words, we're putting them in front of people who are very much like the kind of uh, people that our students are going to work with in their future professional lives. People who are charged with making decisions about national security, uh, but may themselves not know a lot about how the military instrument works. And so they 
give their speeches, but then the real part of the program that I think uh, gives the greatest value is the dialogue that happens afterwards. Mm-hmm. So that's an incredibly long-standing program. I didn't I didn't know that it had gone back um, that far, and it sounds like it's evolved, but its primary purpose has stayed uh, very much the same. Mike, as a student, why was this a program that you wanted to participate in? I heard about this program from other students, and I thought it was a great opportunity to get out both into the academic environment and to talk amongst the American population that doesn't frequently see the military professional, uh, to get out and engage with them, provide a, a different perspective of military life, and then discuss policy issues, not necessarily in a political environment, but just kind of get the facts and our perspective of things. Mm-hmm. So what what would you say is the most surprising thing that you've found as you've gone on the trips or Ed, as you've um, sort of taken students uh, across the country? What surprised you most? I'd say how little politics works its way into most of our discussions. Uh, People are genuinely interested in what our war college students do, what their thoughts are on national security. And it's it's very rare that we get the kind of reaction uh, that is uh, an unreasoned, uh, uh, reflexive, anti-military reaction. Uh, last year, I took students to Ber- I took a team to Berkeley, uh, and we had a great three-hour discussion with undergraduates. Uh, this year, we're going to see you Boulder, and I expect exactly the same sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mike, now, what I, about you? I expected a little bit more uh, intellectual confrontation, I guess, but I found it was very collegial in the academic environment, which was really wonderful. Speaking to graduate students and high school students, and how engaged they were, and they they really wanted to be inquisitive about broader global issues. And then when you talk to just the American people out and about in town halls, uh, it, it was more about what's in the media. So not from an academic perspective or a research perspective, but what events are occurring that specific day. Yeah. So one of the things that we hear a lot about in the national security arena, in the military in particular, is this idea of a civil military gap, right? That there is this wide gulf maybe between the military and the society uh, that it defends. And many people have, have said that this is a significant problem, that it needs to be addressed, and that both the military and the civilian actors in this relationship have have a role to play in closing that gap. So I'd, I'd like to hear sort of your perspective on whether you, whether you see that gap or have experienced that divide, and then how the speeches and the discussions and the questions that you've that you've been able to have might help reduce that if you if you do see yeah when we when I talk to military professionals, especially those who've been stationed in the d c or the Pentagon area, and I ask how do you think civil military relations are, they say it's wonderful. We go over and we speak to Congress all the time. We have a wonderful relationship, and then we discuss so that's kind of legislative executive branch discussions. It's not so much the civilian population and the military aspect. So then we discuss the role of garrison commanders and how they discuss with the population and the communities that they're involved with. But that's kind of limited to about a 50-mile radius Mm -hmm. of an installation typically. So there's this wide swath of the American population that doesn't have this frequent interaction with a military professional. And we really wanted to get out there uh, and make connections with them and, and get that exposure to have these deep discussions with them. 
And that's part of the design of the program. Uh, we intentionally go to places that do not have military bases in the area and don't have a lot of contact with military communities. Uh, so we'll go to UT Austin, uh, we'll go to Berkeley, we'll go to Boulder. Uh, and most of those students do not have military members in their family uh, and don't have any exposure to it. Uh, we're much less likely to go to places in Washington or in uh, around bases in the South, simply because uh, the there's all there's an ongoing military dialogue there yeah, already. There's more of a proximity, and so we know that the, the regional differences are are huge in terms of do Americans know anyone personally that's serving in the military? Do they have a family member? Um, do you think the program is successful in? in educating the public, but also in educating our students who visit these places about um, what a civilian perspective or what a military perspective on certain issues might look like? Yeah, I, I think so. The uh, When we go to a town hall, the reaction uh, amongst the American people is, is almost heartfelt. You know, we were in Westport, Connecticut recently, and we walked into a public library uh, to to look at the facilities they have there, and this one lady kind of jumped out of her seat. We were in uniform, and she was like, "Whoa, where where are you coming from?" And she gave us a big hug, and she said, "My father uh, stormed the beaches of Normandy, and I just don't see a, a American military professional that that often." So that instant connection that she had between her service members and today's service members was was really. Uh, kind of heartfelt. And then when you get into the academic environment, it's, it's less of the, the passion, but more of the, the logical conversation. What do you think about a particular topic? What, what do you think about military presence in the Middle East or this competition between China and the United States in the, in the South China Sea? What direction do you think it's going? Why don't we have more cooperation? Why is it into the competition realm and we discuss these various philosophies and it's it's enlightening to them and it's also enlightening to us as we have conversations about their perspectives on things and what is fact what is fiction and i see a real growth in the students over the course of a semester in their ability to handle complex questions uh, in a way that communicates effectively to a civilian audience so where the students might in january at the beginning of our season, uh, start out by answering questions with a lot of jargon, uh, as though they were in front of a military audience, very quickly within a, a month or two, they're able to think through what their answer is, but then tailor their answer to the civilian audience. They learn to read the audience, its skill level, uh, what it will understand and understand how to best represent mm -hmm. the military point of view to them. Yeah, that sounds like a really fantastic opportunity for students and for the the audiences that you're that you're talking to to really engage um, in this dialogue. So, Mike, I'm going to put you on the spot, and I know you all prepare short uh, speeches. So, could you tell us very, very briefly? We don't have time to do the to do the whole formal ones, um, but what have you been talking about when you've been on these uh, war college uh, road shows? So, the the two speeches that I've generated to spur discussion. The first is really about authoritarianism and this transfer of capital from democracies to authoritarian powers. So at the end of the 20th century, democracies held about 90% of the world GDP, but in the last 20 years, that has shifted to about 75% of the world GDP. And what does this do for cooperation and potential uh, conflict? But operating at those levels just below conflict and competition or just below 
uh, competition into the cooperation area? And should we be reinforcing democracies with our capital institutions and not so much authoritarian uh, states that don't possess our same values? So this conflict between capitalist interest and our democratic values. The second one is uh, kind of war for humanitarian purpose. And I really want to talk to the population about what would be the passion or logic that would drive you as a population to want to send a military uh, formation unit uh, soldiers into combat in order to prevent human suffering. And you look at where is a lot of uh, genocide, you know, 231 million people died from war and conflict in the 20th century, 160 million of them from genocide alone. And most of that was by authoritarian states. So what is it, what are the conditions that you wanna send military forces in to relieve human suffering and what is the conflict of that? So why isn't it a UN action? Well, there's competition right now. So Russia has veto power, China has veto power, we have veto power. Nobody wants those great powers to get involved in regional conflicts. So if you don't go through the UN, then do you use regional bodies? What's the conditions that you would commit military forces? And what are the conflicts as these great powers inject more power into the conflict and it has a potential of expanding? Yeah. So how did you how did you arrive at those two at those two topics? Yeah, it was really here at the War College as we talk about this. Uh, you know, China, Russia, Iran, um, North Korea, kind of these, these potential conflicts or flashpoints, areas of competition that we have around the globe, uh, and also terrorism. And why does capital transfer between certain institutions or not certain institutions? And then what's the human aspect of that? If you look at capitalism, it doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't always value the human aspect of these things. And if you look at where humanitarian crises are, capital often doesn't flow there. So what is this kind of disconnect between capital flow and where humanitarian crises uh, occur? And that spurred mostly from just classroom type discussions. Great. So what's been the, what's been the response to those, those two topics? So a lot of, uh, the people really understand this conflict between authoritarianism and democracy, uh, especially amongst the older population who kind of remembers Russia. We didn't trade a lot with or the Soviet Union. Right. We didn't trade a lot with the Soviet Union. So you had first world countries, second world countries, and third world countries. They understand that. Uh, for the younger generation, it tends to be more cooperation. Well, why aren't we cooperating? If we have capitalist peace and we're all economically interconnected, then we're not going to go mm-hmm. to war. Then you discuss, well, what about democratic peace theory? Uh, they, they seem to be very versed in capitalist peace theory, but not so much democratic peace theory and this interconnection of values that we've had in the 20th century that's kind of overcome some of this authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. And then on the humanitarian aspect, of things, uh, you find the passion of the people really wants to help. They want to help people in in uh, mass migrations that are occurring from war and conflict. Yeah, relieving human suffering Absolutely. seems is a is an ideal and a good thing to many people. Right? Absolutely, relieving human suffering. But if you look at places again, the '90s in Bosnia and Kosovo, and where we got involved for relieving human suffering, that resulted in nation building and us forming new states. Basically, uh, the international community decided to remove some sort of sovereignty that these nations had and create new states out of it because of the humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. Is that what we wanna do in this century? 
And what are the tensions of doing that? What are the potential conflicts, especially as you've seen this this capital transfer from democracies into authoritarian states and how they enter, how they can use humanitarian disasters to inject uh, power and, and That action influence. in one area is going to have consequences and political consequences um, that you may not want to deal with. So you've got to figure out where to where to draw those lines, I guess. Yeah, it's very complicated. I mean, you're injecting uh, some sort of military force to bring peace to the area, but then other nations may be injecting um, combat power at the low-level scale of conflict in order to defeat your your influence and presence. They don't want you to expand that yeah, influence these, and presence. These sound like great, I think, topics to induce discussion and to induce real thinking uh, within and this dialogue that you're talking about between military and civilian. Um, Ed, what kind of other things are students talking about these days? Well, the my only requirement for students in selecting their topics is that it be something they can articulate in terms of strategy, in terms of ends, ways, means, and risk. And then I let them go where their interests lead mm-hmm. them. And that leads to discussions across uh, a wide variety of topics. I have uh, people talking about means in terms of uh, the military force, active, uh, the all-volunteer force, uh, the idea of a draft. Uh, they talk about the diversity of the force. What does diversity mean? Is it what is the difference between visible diversity and other forms of diversity, like cognitive diversity and inclusion? And inclusion. Yeah. Uh, the we talk about uh, the ways that we approach conflict, uh, effectiveness of counterinsurgency. Uh, we talk about the ends. Should we continue to be in certain conflicts like Afghanistan? And uh, the only thing that unifies all of these subjects, or really the two things that do, is that they're based in strategy, and they are something that the uh, my students are particularly interested in researching. Mm-hmm. Great. So they have the, the freedom to sort of pick a topic that interests them, that they want to think about, write about, talk about. Um, and that just starts the conversation. And, sure. and then it, it, and then who knows what happens in Q and A, I imagine. Which, which is really the, the wonderful piece. You know, we start talking about military families. What is it like to be deployed? How do your kids perform in school when you're deployed? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're, you have a sophomore or junior in high school and the family member leaves, well, do colleges understand the lack of that, that presence and the stress that brings to that family can impact how that kid performs in school and then can impact their acceptance to colleges. And when you're talking to colleges, they don't always understand this uh, dynamic and you start to to start to bring a new light to it. Sounds really valuable. Um, We'll close out with a question about um, what you've learned by participating in, uh, in the program, Mike, from your point of view as a student and then as the director, as someone who's obviously been on lots of these trips, you all travel. I'm, I'm in awe of the, the schedule that you all keep in this spring um, so what have, what have you learned by doing this? So two things. When we interact with the American people and with academia, we were able to discuss policy and get their feedback on, on policy, potential policy. As strategic advisors, when we're advising senior uh, government leaders, we can say that we have a little bit of connection with the population and we know what direction they may be uh, f- 
they may feel. Uh, the second part is just the interaction with my fellow students and their perspectives on things. Uh, you know, we, we discuss diversity, but we also need inclusion. So just because you have a diverse population or, or you have a diverse group of people at your boardroom or in your, in your academic environment, are they actually intellectually included in the discussion? And that intellectual inclusion uh, is extremely important, and it makes people feel like they're participating in, in democracy and in shaping policy. Mm-hmm. I think the thing I've learned the most from this is that our approach here at the War College uh, to trying to build strategic leaders, to give them the cognitive tools to be able to translate a career of military advice into, or military expertise into policy advice, uh, is basically sound. Because I see it demonstrated at a level above what we do here. Here we do small seminars and we have discussions among largely military uh, groups. Mm -hmm. But on the road, we're talking to the American public, to people who are interested but really don't know very much about how the military functions other than what they've seen through incidental contact in the public or have seen in the media. What my students are able to do, particularly after a few engagements, is talk to that audience effectively and integrate many of the things that we discussed in our core curriculum uh, into things that are uh, good, comprehensive answers to complex questions. And not necessarily definitive answers, but answers that help advance the discussion and the debate. Great. So it sounds like the gap, if it exists, is a gap that can be closed um, or at least maybe reduced by increased talking, by increased interaction. Uh, and that may come from from both sides, right? Military going into civilian uh, communities and audience, talking to civilian audiences and then inviting civilians uh, to sort of come and live and work uh, in, in this world as well. But learning how to translate for each other, learning how to do that work of taking the jargon-filled answers or the, the deeply uh, sort of expert knowledge answers and translating them and then thinking about what the what the public wants to know and needs to know in order to participate fully in this conversation. Um, I've had several students participate in the Eisenhower program and they all, I think, are, are better off for it. And so thanks so much for the work that you put in in organizing and coordinating and the, the travel. Um, all of that is a lot. And Mike, thanks for participating uh, and being a face of the Army War College to the external world. And thanks for joining me today on War Room. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.